Hello, and welcome to the Green Team of the Legendarium, the weird little spinoff of the Legendarium podcast, where patrons get together to talk about the books and topics the main crew hasn't gotten around to yet. I'm Little Red Book, and tonight I have with me the man who reigns in the wild discorders, Captain. Hey, everybody. And I also have with me a very special guest, Mercedes Lackey. Hi, Mercedes. Hello. Mercedes Lackey published her first story, now correct me if I'm wrong, in 1964. And she won the Lambda Award for Magic's Price in 1991 and was named Grand Master of Science Fiction and Fantasy Authors of America for 2022. For nearly 60 years, Mercedes has been delighting us fantasy readers. Um, my first passport story was published in 1984, not 54. No, I said 64, but I found a short story published. Yeah, earlier. 1984. Really? Okay. Yeah. So I have been corrected, folks. And once again, I am wrong online. <laughs> my first professional short story. We don't, oh. we don't, we don't talk about all the, uh, the stuff I did for the, for the high school fiction magazine. And we don't talk about all the fan fiction. We could. Oh, I count we it. <laughs> I love counting high school stuff. I think it's great. Yeah, we should count it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think high school presses do a valuable job across the country. I mean, that's how writers start to cut their teeth, right? Yeah. Well, back in my day, yeah. I think these days there are so many outlets for uh, people who want to try writing that I'm not sure that high school literary magazines are top of the heap anymore well maybe not top of the heap but number two son got published in his high school's literary good for number two son yeah i want to actually ask you about something that's completely unrelated to writing would you consider your, your yourself a horse girl and can you tell us about raptor rehabilitation would i consider myself a what horse girl horse girl oh god um when i was a kid I was definitely a horse girl. I still wanted one through my 20s. In my 30s, I became painfully aware that a horse is a giant sinkhole in the middle of a pasture that you just throw money down. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like a boat in that respect. It is exactly like a boat. So I confined my interest in horses to the Purely academic, as it were. I never formally learned to ride. I can ride. I don't ride well. I greatly enjoy riding other people's horses. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) I I do consider or did consider myself a horse girl for sure. I uh, barrel raced, but not well. (laughs) Well, there you go. You know all about the giant sinkhole in the pasture, don't you? (laughs) Well, I didn't pay for it. My oh, grandfather, no. yeah, my grandfather always kept a couple horses around on his farm because he he really enjoyed riding, and so, and I have a cousin with a horse ranch, so there's that. Mercedes, did you have any like specific horse type or like one imagined in your mind in childhood? I don't know. I saw Black Beauty and was affected forevermore. Did you have something similar? Lip is on, lip is on all the way, baby. Okay. <laughs> There was a touring Lipazon show, which three times I got to work backstage holding horses when they came to South Bend. Oh, fun. That was glorious because 
those guys are the smartest horses I've ever seen. Now, I hear that Akultekes are smarter, but the lips, all stallions, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the best mannered horses I've ever seen in my life. Even the stallions? Yes. I could string six horses, three on each arm, holding them for the performers. There was no drama. There was no jostling. There was no nipping. It was all business as usual. We're standing here waiting for our riders, and we know what to do when he gets on. Oh, wow. I did not know that. That kind of goes uh, along with what the writing instructor with the show told me now all the all the instructors and all the writers were trained at the stud farm at peber and in vienna at the spanish writing school wow and the horse master told me that they take a old rider to train a young lip and an old lip to train a young rider (laughs) (laughs) the old lip is on know exactly what to do they do it they're like, I swear to God, they're like uh, buttoned-down, steely-eyed missile men from the 50s when it comes to doing their job. <laughs> and they really enjoy their job. I, they're, they're the absolute pleasure. They, well, as soon as their rider would approach them, the head would come up, the ears would swivel toward him, the tail would flag, and they were ready to go. And they love applause. They absolutely adore applause. Wow. I never thought of a horse appreciating something like that before. Oh, they do. They totally do. Speaking of old lips, they get pretty old, right? Lipazon can reach 40. Yeah, that's pretty old. Yeah. Judy Tarr has a herd, one stallion, and I think five mares. And they're just astonishing. They really are. Hers are just as smart. They're just not quite as buttoned down as the show horses. <laughs> so is it safe to assume that there's some lip in your uh, heralds and your companions? Absolutely. The companions are mostly based on lipizzas. Awesome. The Shanaian steeds are somewhat based on the Akultekes. And you'll have to go look those up. They are amazing Mongolian horses. I will have to. Anyway, so Raptor Rehab. I got into that... I took ethology, that's the science of animal behavior, in college, and I specialized, everybody in that course would just pick something to specialize in. To the end of the course, you were supposed to design an environment for them to be, for your, your chosen critter to be displayed in, that would be optimized for the critter rather than for display. And I just took birds. Uh, Nobody else took birds at all, so I just took the whole category of bird. But I got especially interested in the raptors. And then when I hooked up with Larry, he'd done a little raptor rehab. There were not a lot of people in Tulsa that were doing raptor rehab because they are, you know, dangerous. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Quite dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Even if you do know what you're doing, my worst injury came when a great horned owl put his talon through the palm of my Kevlar-lined welding glove, through my palm, and out the other side. Oh, yikes. 
And I had to sit there bleeding down my arm while I waited for the owl to decide to let go. Oh, Jesus. Because if you if you jerk away, all they're going to do is, oh, that's that's prey trying to get away from me. And all they're going to do is clamp down harder with 500 foot pounds of pressure. Oh, per gallon. oh man. Yeah. Oh. I'm not sure I would be so composed with a puncture wound. No joke. Well, in the palm, fortunately, in the palm of your hand, there's not a lot of nerves, not like the, the fingers. But yeah, it was uh, it was an experience. Sounds like it. There were not a lot of people doing raptor rehab, and Larry had experience with it, and I had my ethological background. So we started out, we started out small with a little kestrel. Uh, My ex-husband called us up and said, I don't know what to do with this. He's got a broken, it's a great, it's a, it's a red tail hawk and he's got a broken wing. Now, every time a, a rehabber hears the word, it's a red tail hawk, it's almost always a kestrel. Really? Well, it, it's understandable when you figure that the average person never gets to see a bird of prey really close. And when an angry kestrel has flipped over on his back and he's presenting two, two, two talons at you and he's screeching at the top of his lung and every feather is puffed out, he looks way bigger than he actually is. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. If you hear... Red-tailed hawk, it's always a kestrel. If you hear eagle, it's always a red-tailed hawk. Like a, like a, I'm trying to figure out how, because we have osprey mostly and uh, bald eagles, but how would you confuse a bald eagle with a red-tailed hawk? Because people just see talons, beak, and angry. Okay, that's fair enough. That's all they see. And really, uh, you've got to admire the average guy that calls you and tells you, "I've got a bird in a box." That he actually had <laughs> the chutzpah. He actually had the chutzpah to go up to that thing with talons and beak and screaming, throw a jacket over it, and, and put it in a box. <laughs> that takes some balls. <laughs> it sure does. I wouldn't. I don't think. Now we never did eagles, although I did have an eagle periodically in my bathtub. I've had to catch bats before, but uh, mostly I stood out of the way and screamed. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but periodically, we had an eagle in our bathtub in our apartment because we were friends with one of the eagle handlers, bald eagle handlers at the Sutton Avian Research Center. And they go out and they do presentations all over the state of Oklahoma. And we were about halfway between Sutton. And the rest of Oak, almost the rest of Oklahoma. So she and her eagle would stop over for some dinner and some downtime before going all the way to back to the the research center and uh, tucking up for the night. And the bathtub was the logical place to put it. <laughs> the bathroom was inside, so there were no windows. The portable bow perch fit right inside. We just had to hang up some plastic around the bathtub because eagles projectile poop. <laughs> oh boy, do they ever projectile poop. <laughs> boy, can they get you if you're not wary. <laughs> and uh, we put him in there and turn out the light and he got to relax in, in cool comfort and he was happy. And she got something to eat and she got some time to, to pry her 
fingers out of the steering wheel position. <laughs> what are the uh, unusual aspects of habitat design for birds of prey? Birds of prey do need a big, big flight cage, a very big flight cage, but not as big as you'd think. The reason is birds of prey are very efficient. Flight is a highly energy-consumptive mode of transportation, so they try not to waste any energy on flying that they don't have to. That's why when falconers put their peregrines and their gyr falcons up, the falcons will what they call ring up, which is go up, go up high, and they'll find a thermal and they'll circle. Because that's way more energy efficient, and it mimics exactly what they do in the wild. They go out to a, a spot where they know there's a thermal, and they think that there is probably good chance of prey being there, and they'll just ring up and soar from one thermal to another until they spot something, and then they'll go in. Once they've got it, depending upon whether or not it's in breeding season, they'll either eat it there or carry it back to a nest. But in either case, once everybody's full, they stop flying. Right. That makes okay. sense. So when you see birds of prey in display areas and you go, oh gosh, that's such a tiny, that's such a tiny cage. That, that's, a, that's a terrible thing to do with them. They're, especially the vultures and the condors. If they <laughs> don't have to fly, they ain't gonna. <laughs> They'd much rather, and especially the vultures and the condors, which are the most intelligent of all of the raptors, they'd like to hang out and watch the people go by. Once they're used to captivity, people are, are TV for them. <laughs> okay. So would having their cages be in like a direct sight of uh, crowds of people or like a walkway or something be... What I had designed was I designed a geodesic dome with uh, three partitions and one different large bird of prey in each one, plus some smaller birds not typically taken by these birds, like finches and sparrows and things to add interest and color. Uh, I had a, I designed one with a golden, one partition for a golden, which was high desert, one partition for deer falcon, because most people don't ever see them, which was arboreal, and one petition, partition with something that almost no one ever sees in the United States, a caracara, which was swamp. It never got built, but I did the design. Okay, cool. Very cool. And then it was a walkthrough thing, so you could you had nothing between you and the birds ex except air. I don't know if I'd want to do that, just because, like you said, raptors are dangerous. They don't. They're not going to attack you. You're not. You're not small enough to eat. Yep. Okay, that's fair. You're not a threat if they're used to captivity. You're not a threat. You're too big to eat. And if they're full, they're not interested in coming to you to see if you have anything to eat. Okay, fair enough. Now, I, I can say that there is one exception to that that I know of. Was never a bird on display. But this was the case where you could understand why the guy that brought the bird in said, I've got an eagle in a box. 
It's a friend of ours named Sam Conway did some re- rehab at, I think he was, in, he was either in Arkansas or Kansas. And farmer called and said, and it was a hideously cold winter. There had been a huge blizzard followed by a very hard freeze. And a farmer calls and says, I've got an eagle in a box. And Sam goes, okay, bring it in. It can't. The farmer says, it can't fly. Sam says, okay, bring it in. And here comes about a red tail size box. Sam goes to pick it up and he almost drops it because it's so heavy. Mm. And he looks inside and what he essentially sees is an overinflated basketball with feathers. <laughs> what? A red tail usually caps in at about 17 ounces. This bird was three pounds. Oh, wow. And the farmer said, here's what happened. We had this blizzard. We had this freeze. I was missing some cattle. I was finally able to get out to the back to see if I could track down some of them. I found where one of them had died. And this guy was sitting on top of it. Oh, no. (laughs) And near as I can figure, he wasn't being threatened by anything. Nothing could get to him. There were no, for whatever reason, there were no crows or ravens competing with him for the carcass. It didn't smell, so there weren't any vultures either. And he decided, I'm going to sit here and stuff my face every time I have the tiniest bit of room in my stomach. (laughs) And he did that for the better part of two weeks. Oh, no. So needless, there was nothing wrong with him except that he was literally <laughs> too fat to get off the ground. Sounds like a Labrador. Yeah, he really, I've never heard of a raptor doing that before. Usually they're full, they're fine, they go sit somewhere. Not this boy. He decided he had, he had gone to red tail heaven and he was not leaving. <laughs> That's hilarious. The finest black Angus there is, and it was all his. (laughs) So that's the one exception I'd ever heard to the fact raptors will not overeat. He had to go on a diet, and he was not happy about it. I'm sure. It would be very cool to see uh, if there was any sort of genetic cause for that. No idea. No idea. Anyway, we did uh, did a lot of raptor rehab, uh, especially after we got our own house so we could put up our own flight cages. Probably the most dangerous bird we handled wasn't the great horned owls. We, we went up to great horned owl. We only did adults because there was a gal in Tulsa that had a great horned owl non-releasable female that would foster anything. Mm-hmm. So you could take, if you had baby great horned owls, you could just put them with her and she was, yes, that's mine now, (laughs) and take care of them. So all the babies went to her. You don't want, you don't want an owl specifically imprinting on a human being because once they get to sexual maturity, they're looking for love in all the wrong places. (laughs) And... If you've ever seen that short video of Stephen Fry and his photographer when they went out to uh, visit 
the kakapos in New Zealand, and the kakapo proceeded to walk up the photographer's back and mount and through his head. <laughs> you must look this up. You must look this up. Just look up YouTube Stephen Fry kakapo. We'll put uh, it in the show notes. <laughs> just imagine that with great horned owl talons, which are fully two to three inches long and 400 foot pounds of pressure on your head, trying to keep their balance. <laughs> yeah, not a pretty picture. <laughs> not a pretty picture at all. So I'll pass. Yeah. Yeah. So we got, we got up to great horned owls. The Eagles went to either Sutton or an Eagle specialist in the center of the state. Not that we ever got many eagles, thank goodness, but that's where they went. We got everything from that size on down. And the most dangerous bird we ever handled, and we handled a lot of them because we had a great success rate with them, were great blue herons. Ooh. You think about that, that's a two-foot-long spear on the end of a spring-loaded launcher. We used to have great blue herons in the pond behind my childhood home. I bet you've seen them strike. Oh, yeah, they, they were terrifying. We were not allowed uh, near them as small children. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had a friend who had a pond, like a koi pond. <laughs> they finally quit stocking it because the blue herons would come and eat the, the poor koi <laughs> out of the pond. <laughs> That's very typical. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they were the most dangerous because when they're frightened and they strike for you, they anything that is larger than their prey, they strike for the eyes. Oh. And we would wear shatterproof welding masks to go in and take care of them. Oh, wow. And here's the thing. The reason we had success rate was because we were a combination of brave and patient. Herons have a defense mechanism when they're frightened. That and cornered that they'll throw up everything that's in their stomach, hoping that you, you will either be disgusted and run away or eat that instead of them. So it's very hard to keep herons in captivity in a rehab situation because you can feed them and they'll throw it right back up. So when you were in, when we were in the force feeding portion of our program, which is generally when they were, we got them in and they were hurting and they were maybe a little shocky and they were terrified and they certainly weren't going to try and feed themselves you'd have to sit in the cage with them open that razor sharp beak and the edges are sharp let me tell you cram the fish down the throat massage it all the way down the throat into the stomach repeat that for about eight times then let go and step back and wait to see if he threw it back up again and if he didn't, if it, was, if it went five minutes without throwing up, you could leave. If he threw it right back up again, you had to start all over again. And that's why we had great success with him. We never lost a great blue heron. That's awesome. How did you ever find time to write? <laughs> and of course, nobody wanted them because their, their, their poop smells like fish. <laughs> Dead, rotting fish. <laughs> No one wanted those in their backyard. <laughs> no. no. Okay. Um, if you don't mind, we'd like to shift gears a little bit and start talking a little bit about your writing. You're up, Kit. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. 
I mean, I was like, wow, she's got this much patience. I, I see where all of her like rehabilitation and recovery scenes come from. Exactly. Exactly. Speaking of someone who needed much rest and rehabilitation, uh, what was your inspiration for Vanyal? And uh, did he need to go through so much pain? Well, Vanyal started because I had to put magic into the first into the Arrows books, at least the first one, because Betsy Wolheim insisted that it was a fantasy, so it had to have some magic in it. But at that point in my writing... And in what I envisioned Valdemar history to be, there was no magic magic. It was only uh, psychic powers, which they referred to as mind magic. And so I cranked up Vanyel, and for some reason, and I don't know why, I just did. Uh, I had him as gay from the start. And then when the time came to do another set of Herald books, I did the, a couple Tarmas and Terma and Kethries before I did the Herald books. Vanyal seemed like a good place to go. I knew he was going to be the last of the magic users because that was baked in already. Okay. So I had to come up with scenarios whereby magic users were getting picked off. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to make him someone that even we'll call them moderately homophobic people could sympathize with and start to form some empathy. So that's why I dropped mountains on him periodically. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. You, you dropped mountains on Vanyal and my heart in those books. So congrats. Well, you know, I also bought stock in Kimberly Clark, so boxes of Kleenex. <laughs> no. Hmm. Yeah, I bought stock in Kimberly. No, I didn't. I didn't buy stock. In <laughs> I was like, I know that name. I know that name. <laughs> oh, man. Kim Wipes. <laughs> um, so have you ever felt like going, going back to an old novel and editing it or adding something in? Yeah, I have, but I write for a living, and no one's going to pay me to rewrite the old stuff. I mean, that's fair enough. Now, Marion Zimmer Bradley did a lot of rewrites on her Daw books, or on her Darkover books, but that was because they were initially published by Ace, and there's the 50% rule. Which is, if you rewrite something and change at least 50% of it, it becomes a new book. Oh, interesting. So she resold them all to Daw by rewriting them and adding about, I think she added about 40% more material because the books for Ace were 60,000 words and less. And the books for Daw were about 80 to 120,000 words. By the time she got done rewriting. So that way she did get paid to rewrite it. Okay. It seems like she uh, escaped one publisher to go to another as well. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, she, she was, Donald Wilhelm was her editor at Ace. And she wanted to follow him when he started Daw. Ah, uh, okay. Oh, okay. And, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was a very tight relationship there. Just like if Betsy went somewhere else, I'd follow her. Okay. Not that that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Yeah, I thought about it, and there's things I would. I do a thorough rewrite on it. I do a really thorough rewrite on it because I'm a better writer now. And there's there's some stuff that it's things that make me cringe. It doesn't necessarily make anyone else cringe. The first book was done in third person, omniscient. I didn't do it as well as I could now, and I wouldn't do it in third person omniscient now. So, okay. you know, there's that. And the, the, the viewpoint flops make me cringe sometimes because they're not as well executed as they could be. So, it's, it's, see, it's all technical stuff. It's stuff that makes me cringe but doesn't necessarily make anybody else cringe. Unless they're a writer. <laughs> Writers <laughs> notice this shit. Writers notice this shit. You become, when you become a, particularly when you become a professional writer, there are plenty of times when you'll start a book and you'll just toss it across the room because you can't stand what's going on in there technically. It can be the most wonderful characters in the world. It can be terrific uh, ideas. Uh, the plot can be riveting, but the way it's written, you just can't suffer through it. So it's mostly your early works that you uh, have in mind here? Yeah, I'd probably rewrite, if, if I were going to rewrite stuff, I'd probably rewrite Eros. Uh, I'd probably rewrite the Tarma and Kathri stuff. I might do a rewrite on the Eric Banyan, Bedlam's Bard stuff. That wasn't as, isn't as cringy, but still, there is stuff I do. But yeah, I don't get paid to rewrite, so I mean, if somebody wants to pay me to rewrite, sure. But I don't get paid to rewrite. I get paid to, re to, to write something new, and that electric bill keeps on coming. <laughs> Would you perhaps consider a rewrite if uh, it was going to be, or even just a minor brush-up, if you were going to have, say, a uh, special edition hardback made for, I don't know, maybe if uh, you had a Kickstarter like Brandon Sanderson? If I'm going to do a Kickstarter, I'm going to do it for new work. Okay. In fact, we're talking about that. I have a group of people that I got out of uh, doing, believe it or not, fan fiction in the City of Heroes, that uh, the video game. I heard you were a fan of City of Heroes. That's awesome. You do you, you do realize it's back, right? Uh, I did not, no. Uh, do a Google search on City of Heroes Homecoming and you're all set. Okay. It's back. It's free. We've negotiated a... We will we'll leave you. We won't uh, ruin your IP if you don't. If you'll leave us alone, situation with NCSoft, and they're allowing us to operate servers. We've got. I have no idea. I'm sorry. Six of them. It's a superhero game. Okay, I was going to say I have no idea what you guys are talking about. And it's a superhero game, and it's tons of fun. I think it still holds up today. The graphics may not hold up, but the rest of it does. The core uh, mechanic is very unique. It was definitely a unicorn. Yeah. No one has ever done anything quite like it to be make it so engaging and so replayable. I mean, so very replayable. Anyway. The permutations are awesome. So I've got <laughs> more. We even added new power sets. Fantastic. Whole new power sets. Whole new character class. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Anyway. So I've got some these these folks from uh, City of Heroes, Dennis Lee, Cody Martin, Veronica Gougier, and we did a, a, a superhero pentology called uh, 
Secret World Chronicles. And we branched out since we finished Secret World Chronicles. We're doing something lighter because I'll be honest with you, the news is just one more chunk of bleakness on top of another every day. What is it? 190 mass shootings in 128 days. I've lost track of the number, but I, yeah, I've not been very believable. Climate disaster, rights being torn away from people. We decided we there was enough horribleness that we were going to write something light and amusing. We've got two projects, and the one I have going with just with Veronica is the farthest along. And they're both urban fantasies. The one with Veronica came about when I was trying to find amusing story, news stories to read. And I came across this one where it turns out that Airbnb has a disaster team. Really? <laughs> More than one, apparently. But they have these teams that when you, you as a host have a horrible, no good, awful disaster in with the clients that they've left your place in i think i've heard of some of those let's let's say they left a murdered body in your in your in your <laughs> place and not only that but it's been there for a week oh dear yeah they have that kind of cleanup team and they will come in and they will they will take care of it all for you and i said to veronica well what if what if there was an Airbnb type of thing? Let's go urban fantasy. What if there's an Airbnb type of thing for supernatural creatures? Because, you know, werewolves need vacations too. Yeah. <laughs> and they had, had that kind of, of disaster team. I mean, I can see why <laughs> that would come up. <laughs> it's called The Fixers. And, well, we're enjoying it. We think it's amusing. The other one, the other, it is not quite as laugh out loud funny as the other one we're doing. The whole group is doing something called Lilith's Lingerie. Oh. It's set in the 1980s in Toronto because no one except Charles DeLint ever sets anything in Toronto. And the premise is that Adam's first wife, Lilith, not a demon. Yep. Uh, after all these many centuries of knocking around the world has settled in toronto and runs a high-end lingerie and sex toy shop oh dear <laughs> that sounds great that sounds like a lot of fun she has supernaturals working for her one of the shop uh, counter people is a magical girl her familiar is an octopus <laughs> you can bring the tentacle jokes on now <laughs> we're a family uh, podcast <laughs> Her, her semstress is Arachne. Nice. Who, who is, of course, the spider, a giant right, right. spider. Okay. Her designer is a vampire. She owns a diner and a motel attached to the shop. The motel is a no-tell motel type thing. <laughs> uh, staff, staff get to have some of the units, but the rest of the units are all themed. So there's a rubber, there's a rubber room for that people who are into that. What is the heat level story? Say what? What is like uh, the heat how level sexy on this story? Yeah, yeah, how how many chili peppers you see on the back cover? 
we we actually are going to have a lot of, of of graphic sex. It's just implied. Okay. Okay. That but, sounds good. Uh, and then there's a diner at the end where gods hang out. Nice. <laughs> nice. So please, yeah. Please I tell think- me Zeus makes an appearance. Zeus will make an appearance in there somewhere. He's he's got a beer gut. Uh, he's holding. Um, he's he's like those old Italian guys who think they still have it with the ladies. <laughs> oh, hopefully he's not so rapey as he is in the okay. mythology. Okay, you have a beach I live next to. It's more whimsical than 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 uh, racy, but we do have a dild- stone dildo with a genie in it. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things, just since we're kind of on this topic, one of the things I really love about your fiction is that it's very escapist in a lot of respects. That it's that's what it's I'm aiming easy. for. Yeah, that's and, what I'm aiming for. And when I'm feeling down, I pull out the Five Hundred Kingdoms, or I pull out one of the um, Elemental Master books. I, it's a fairy tale retelling. It's a story I love. Moved into a different place, and it just. It's a palate cleanser after reading something really dark. And I really appreciate that. And I think it's a very important niche that needs to be filled, filled because I think that some authors take themselves a bit too seriously. Well, as Larry has said very often about comics, it also holds with uh, yep. any form of literature. Dark does not equal deep. Yep, I agree. Which yep. is a mistake that many, many writers make. They think it's going to be real deep if they make it real dark. No, you're just making it dark. I agree. So, anyway, that's just what I love about your fiction. So, I, look, I make no bones about it. I consider myself a hack. If you recall that the original der- derivation for hack is it's a good, sound, reliable horse that will get you where you want to go in a reasonable length of time and in comfort. Perfect. That's me. I would That's agree. <laughs> I'm not looking for awards. I'm I'm not looking for, God knows, I'm not looking for prizes like the Pulitzer or anything. I have no delusions whatsoever. <laughs> That I'm that level of writing. I'm not on Charles DeLint's level, okay? <laughs> I'm not on Judy Tarr's level. I'm just trying to get everybody through the day with something to think about except the news. <laughs> what was the hardest novel that, that you had to write? What, what was the hardest most to write? Yeah. Oh, God. Well, the actual hardest to write is the, another one I'm working on right now. It's the last, or, or the last contracted for Elvenbane book. After Andre died, uh, there was some some legal problems. Uh, when Andre Norton died, she left a holographic will, video will, in which she left the collaborative properties to her respective collaborators, and the rest to her caretaker. And some misogynist judge in Tennessee overruled it on behalf of the previous beneficiary of the will, who's a cancer doctor in Texas who has more money than he than God. And that essentially meant I was going to have to write a whole book by myself and share the money with him. 
And my response to that is, oh, hell no. So that hung fire for a while until he finally got the message that it wasn't going to happen. And the provisions of the will, at least they got the collaborators got their collaborative work back. And some other stuff was, he got all of Andre's old papers and whatever unwritten stuff was in there. And good luck with finding a, somebody to, to take those over and above book publisher who was interested. Uh, and the caretaker got the rights to all the extant properties except the collaborative ones. But then there I was stuck. It was going to be something that was going to require some writerly tools I didn't really have and didn't feel comfortable with. And I kind of fished around for a while to look for another collaborator. James Mallory is ill and couldn't handle it. And then I thought, well, what about our old buddy Ben Olander? He did some stuff with David Drake. Uh, he's about ready to retire. He's got time on his hands. He wants to get back into writing. And he's got that set of particular skills. So I pitched it to him. I pitched it to Russ. And Russ thought it was a pretty good idea. But he said he wanted to get Tor's okay on it i said we wait and we waited for a year and a half to get tours okay on it never heard anything from them i finally said the heck with this let's just start it ben because no matter what happens we can always e-publish it Thor does not have the e-rights to those books they were all contracted previously to there being any such thing as e-books mm, that makes sense and if nothing else we can e-publish it and that unlocked that book but that book has been sitting there unwritten for oh god over a decade 15 years when did andre die i don't know somebody google it (laughs) (laughs) 2005 march yeah so it's been a decade and a half almost two decades sitting there doing nothing so he and I are pretty deep into it, and we'll probably have it done by the end of the year. We'll figure out with Tor what Tor wants to do with it. How many projects do you have ongoing, generally speaking? At any one time? Yep. Well, I usually have at least two and sometimes three solo books, and then as many as four collaborative books. Oh, wow. Wow. They may or may not be stalled out. Right now, one of the collaborative books is stalled out because Cody Martin just does not have time. He has a very time and energy consuming real real world job. So the next silence book is kind of stalled out until he can get some get some time and energy for himself. I mean, I think writing is a real world job, right? I mean... You're in the real world and you're getting paid to do it. So it seems like. Well, real... yeah, but. I know, I know, I know. You know, this is the day job. Right. I'm very, very unusual in that my, my writing job is my day job because my writing job pays the same bills that day jobs do. And that's Did true. Did you realize that 95% of all writers have a day job? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I okay. do. Yeah. So, Lammy, who is our resident Discord cat lover. Well, one of them, anyway, wants to know if your cat found a home, your friend's cat. I still have the Maine Coon who still needs a home. 
if anyone, here's the situation. My friend Nancy Asire, uh, I'll cut it, cut the, all the groom stuff short, broke hips several times, Alzheimer's, realized she was never going to be able to get into the assisted living where she could have her cats back because I was taking care of them for her while she was in the hospital and in the nursing home and just gave up. She just gave up and died. So I was left with her three cats and I found homes for two of them. The one that's left is a big Maine Coon. She's a little more difficult to place because she does not get along with other cats well. She is a bully. Well, I regret to inform you that I have a kitten, so I don't think I'm going to be able to take the cat. <laughs> I'm sorry. If anybody out there is looking for a cat, she looks exactly like Grudge from, from Star Trek Discovery. Exactly like Grudge. She's about the same size. She will come with her own copy of the Book of Grudge. <laughs> I will ship her. I will take care of the vet check and all the shots and the, and the wellness check and all of that. I will ship her with a land courier that I've used twice before, who are awesome, who will deliver her straight to your door, no expense to you. And she's a sweet cat. She loves being petted. Absolutely adores being petted. She's very calm and sedate. She's just a bully. Well, hopefully we have a listener out there with a grudge-shaped hole in their life who uh, <laughs> has a space. That would be lovely. Get in touch with me via, via the green team. Okay. So, so moving on. Moving how, on. How has the publishing <laughs> landscape changed throughout your career? Well, the last Herald Mage was the first high fantasy series by a mainstream publisher with a gay protagonist at the time of its writing. Not true. Were you concerned not about how that was going to be? Not true? Not true? Not true. Sam Delany did it. Sam Delany. Yeah, in, okay. Not in the series because he didn't usually doesn't write series, but in individual books. Uh, Sam, Del, Sam Delany did it. And Marion Zimmer Bradley did it. And Jessica Salmonson did it. They all did it before I did. Jessica's was lesbian, not not gay, but, uh, you know, different stripe on the rainbow flag. So there you go. So, no, I was not the first. Okay. In fact... My, my script is wrong. Oh, no. And, well, in fact, uh, you can go all the way back to the first overtly gay character in any science fiction was Theodore Sturgeon, World Well Lost. He very nearly got himself blackballed out of the industry for it. Oh, wow. Except, it, except that it is such an amazing short story. Adding that to the list. Which I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend. Everybody read, anybody read that and read Saucer of Loneliness. And you're probably going to become addicted and then go out and buy the 13 volume set of all the complete Theodore Oh stories. no, not another, not another <laughs> series. <laughs> I not only, but well, he's dead. So there's no more. There's, you okay, well, that's right. <laughs> you don't have to catch up with anything more. <laughs> 13 volumes is it, and it's mostly short stories. I think oh, oh, this yeah. is perfect for me. Star this Sturgeon is was mostly a short story writer. I'm writing it. And Allison has a short story podcast. I think Sturgeon is probably the best short story writer of the 20th century. 
Oh man. And That's... I'm going, I'm go, I'll go to the mat with all the literatis who have their own particular. I'm telling you. I will go to the mat for sure. Mercedes, I'm going to have you on my podcast. <laughs> my own private one that we do short stories. Anyway. Sure. We'll have you on to discuss this sturgeon, gentlemen. I would absolutely listen to that. Uh, <laughs> I'm. Thank you for the Rex. Yes, 100%. If you had any more, please feel free. Our, our community loves to have an overflowing to-be-read pile. So that we can all feel terrible, terrible guilt. <laughs> well, right up there with Sturgeon is, is Charles DeLint. Okay. And then probably, uh, for short stories, and then probably... Just slightly below Charles DeLint, in my estimation, is Spider Robinson. So, there you go. I like stories with heart. Anything else you need to cover? I did have one more question. Sure. So, in Valdemar, you write that the people have such a deep connection to music. And I was wondering, what were your early musical influences that made it so important to you? Oh, I was in music, into music from the time I was in grade school. I was in grade school band. I was in high school band. Uh, I taught myself how to play the alto and soprano recorder. Taught myself how to play the guitar. Uh, and the only reason I'm not still into music is, as in performing it, is because I can do other things well for a hobby. And I won't say I do music badly, but I don't do it well. I do, frankly, excellent sewing and embroidery and jewelry work and bead work. And the, I even do some needle felting. Needle felting is for the days when you want to stab something 10,000 times. <laughs> it really is. Because that's exactly what needle felting is. Taking a needle or several needles and stabbing something 10,000 times. Fair enough. So you have been so gracious with your time. Um, I have one more question that I would like to ask because I think we've pretty much covered all the other questions tangentially. If you want to do another podcast at some point, I'm open. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are a delight. So where would you recommend people starting your series or your just your books? Not, not a series, just It really books. depends entirely on what kind of fiction they like. I'd say, I mean, if you happen to like steampunk, even though it isn't steampunk, it's got kind of that same feel about it. Start with any of the elemental masters, except the ones that have got the gray parrot on the front. Those are in a specific order, but the rest of them aren't. Oh, I do like those. That's the ones, that's the ones with Nan and uh, Sarah. Right, right. And, and they, they then segue into Nan and Sarah and Sherlock Holmes and John Watson. Ooh, I think I might have missed a couple books. Yeah, those are the last three or four. They have titles similar to Sherlock Holmes stories. If you like superheroes, there's the Secret World Chronicles. Uh, there are several entry points to Valdemar. You can start with either Arrows of the Queen or Magic's Pawn. Uh, you could also start with the Foundation Trilogy, which is uh, the founding of the Herald's Collegium. Because that's another entry point. I deliberately wrote it that way. If you like epic fantasy, there's the Black Griffin trilogy or the Obsidian Mountain series, which I wrote with James Mallory. 
Uh, you like urban fantasy? There's the Diana Tregard Mysteries, The Serrated Edge, which is, in the words of the blurb from, from Bain Books, hot cars, fast elves, and rock and roll. <laughs> There's also the Bedlam Bards, which is kind of centered around music again, Renfair and Renfair folks. I've even got a I've even got a YA dystopian, which is the Hunter series. Which you oh, can, I love that series, by the way. I only get an ebook now, which is kind of sad. What haven't I touched on that I've done? Oh, there's there's the strictly tongue in cheek Five Hundred Kingdoms, which is uh, fractured fairy tales, definitely. Right. And then we've got something that's really off the wall. It got my best publishers weekly review ever and that's reboots undead can dance <laughs> where where they called it unfettered unfettered oddball entertainment captain where would you recommend people start i don't claim to have any better opinion than what mercedes is given right here <laughs> that's true <laughs> she's pretty much covered it all reboots is weird because it started out with something i thought was impossible i had a friend that was trying to put together a themed anthology and pitched it at me as zombies, zombies, vampires, and werewolves in space. And I thought it was the most ridiculous premise I'd ever heard in my life. And I was bitching to Cody Martin about it. And right in the middle of my bitching, I said, oh my God, I know how I can make this work. <laughs> and, and we did it for, uh, we did it for Ark Manor for Shahid. We did a couple of novellas. And then we put the novella together, those two novellas together with a bigger novella as Undead Can Dance. And it is literally zombies and vampires and werewolves in space. I mean, I'm like, down. What was it that George R. R. Martin said about The Expanse? He said, it's the, the best book about vomit zombies that I've ever read. <laughs> this, this works this way. You have sometime in the, in the near past of this book, there there was a zombie uprising and the other supernatural critters realized that this is a bad thing so they came out of the broom closet and came in on the side of the humans i mean that makes sense right it makes sense that the, the zombies are the zombies are are turning their food into not food right so the zombies lost but there was no going back and in the course of the zombies losing, the humans managed to come up with pretty potent weapons to use against all their supernatural allies, should the supernatural allies turn. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. So by this point in time, we've got near light speed space travel in very janky low, low lowest bidder vehicles. and who best to send out to crew these things but critters that are shall we say more more robust than humans <laughs> so typically what happens is you crew one of these things with zombies for the gener for the janitorial crew vampires for the high-tech positions for the most part mm -hmm. and one werewolf because they can feed off the werewolf and then throw him a stake and he'll re regenerate all the blood. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. And the vampires are 
very like what we do in the darkness vampires oh i love those vampires so yeah there you go they're <laughs> very like that awesome and it's we wrote it to be a comedy and it apparently works just fine <laughs> <laughs> but it's also detective noir okay so there you go Sounds there's, great. There's one oddball that uh, I wish more people would read because it was just so much fun to write it. And everybody that I've talked to that has read it has gone, oh, my God, I never laughed so hard. Solid pitch. <laughs> what? Oh, there we go. Solid pitch. Oh, Thank yes. You. <laughs> <laughs> so just so you know, I write out a little script and it says now it's time for shameless plugs. But I think you've plugged I all just, the things. I just did the same shameless plugs. Yes. <laughs> but I would also like to plug my podcast, which is called Wordless, and that's two words. And my Betty Mark and I talk about short stories in the science fiction and fantasy genre. Kipton, plug? I'd love to plug the green team of the Legendarium where I get to have all of these lovely conversations. <laughs> but they're, they're listening to it's it right fun. now. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, as again, I'm going to say you, you're just, we're very generous with your time and I really appreciate you coming on Mercedes. Well, thank you. And as soon as I get off with you, I got to call my dad because it's Sunday and it's time to call my dad. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap it up real quick. Thanks for joining us. You can find us on the Legendarium's discord. We are also on Twitter at green team pod. Join us in supporting the Legendarium via Patreon. Thank you, Craig, for loaning us a little corner of your media empire. And thank you, Horizon Bray, for starting it all. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed being had. <laughs> for a pleasure. <laughs> for Kip and Mercedes, I'm Little Red Book. Good night. Good night. Good night. Just uh, sing out, Allison. Hello, and welcome to the green team of the Legendarium. <laughs> so are you ready to get started? I am. Okay, perfect. Well, that worked out well. I yeah. thought so. I wasn't expecting quite so much talk about birds, but it was fascinating.